Wesley Hill is a devout Christian. He is fully committed to the Christian view of sex that is clearly and consistently laid out in Scripture and has been affirmed by the church for two millennia and across the world. The teaching that sex is only honoring to God when it is between a man and a woman who are married to one another and all other acts of sex are sinful. This is what Wesley Hill clearly believes and practices. Now listen to the opening paragraph of his excellent book, Washed and Waiting. The subtitle, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. It's the first paragraph of the book. By the time I started high school, two things had become clear to me. One was that I was a Christian. My parents had raised me to believe in Jesus, and as I moved toward independence from my family, I knew that I wanted to remain one, that I wanted to trust, love, and obey Christ, who had been crucified and raised from the dead for us and for our salvation, as the creed puts it. The second thing that was clear to me was that I was gay. For as long as I could remember, I had been drawn, even as a child, to other males in some vaguely confusing way. And after puberty, I had come to realize that I had a steady, strong, unremitting, exclusive sexual attraction to persons of the same sex. Now, I'm starting tonight's talk with Wesley's story for three primary reasons. First, when we talk about homosexuality, we are talking about people, not an issue, people. So we must learn to look at the face of those who are gay. We must look at their face and discover that this person has a soul, a history, a life, And that this is a person that God loves. Two, Wesley Hill did not choose to be attracted to other men. He lives his life with unwanted, unchosen homosexual desires. For some people, sexual orientation is a choice. For others, it is not. Three, growing in holiness as a Christian does not guarantee that a same-sex attracted person will stop experiencing homosexual desires any more than it means a Christian who is born deaf will be healed. There is a mystery to how God does and does not answer our prayers. He is able... But he is not obligated to give us what we ask. We all know that. Every single one of us. And in the same way that's played out in your life a thousand times, it plays out in the life of Christians with same-sex attraction. And now, let's see God's view of homosexuality. And to do that, like we've seen throughout this series... We must start where? 
in creation, in the beginning. Now don't just open your Bible yet because tonight we're going to have a test, a pop quiz, just to get back at the adults. There are seven days of creation described in Genesis chapter 1. Which day is the only day not described as good? Two. Two, the second day, that's right. We're told on day one, when God makes the light and divides the light and the darkness, that it was good. Twice on day three, when God separates the waters and the dry land, we're told that it's good. Then on day four, we're told that it's good. And on day five and on day six. And finally in verse 31, we're told God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. But back on day two, there's silence. Crickets only. There weren't crickets yet. So day two is different. Now, why is that? Well, let's look. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And nowhere in that day, the only day of all, nowhere does God say it's good. Now remember, Genesis chapter 1 describes the world what we would call in philosophy, it describes the world from a phenomenological perspective. That means phenomenon, the way it looks, the way it comes to the eye. Just like we, we use this all the time. We say the sun's going to rise. That's a phenomenological description. It's a description not based on science, but based on what you see. Now, what do you see when you look out these windows at the world, as you look out of them, you see a canopy, a big canopy, a shell separating heaven and earth. And what's this canopy doing? It's dividing heaven and earth. It separates the highest heavens where God dwells from the earth where humans dwell. And in not describing that as good, the writer of Genesis leaves us with a pregnant silence. And that silence gives birth to the entire story of the Bible. That's the pregnancy. That's where the whole drama of Scripture is born from, from that silence. The story the Bible tells is the story of the whole creation moving to something far, far better than what Adam and Eve experienced at the beginning. It was good in the beginning. It will be flippin' marvelous at the end. You see, according to the culture that produced the Bible, heaven and earth are actually two different dimensions. Not locations, dimensions. Heaven and earth are two overlapping and interlocking dimensions of the same reality. And the Bible uses the word heaven to mean God's space, which intersects at the moment in various strange ways with our space. But one day, heaven, God's space, and earth, our space, will be fully integrated. And the Bible describes that as the marriage of heaven and earth. So think about this. In the beginning, God set up a series of complementary pairs. 
Complementary pairs. Pairs that, first of all, he separates, but at the end of the story, he unites. Darkness and light, heaven and earth, sea and dry land, male and female, God and creation. And later in the biblical story, there'll be another polarity set up, the polarity of Jew and Gentile. And God put a boundary, the boundary of circumcision and the law of Moses to divide, to separate Jew and Gentile. And these complementary pairs in Genesis chapter 1 are the engine room which drives all of God's plans for creation. And this is all over the pages of Scripture. But, but a really cool place to see it is in the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians. And notice how this complementary pair situation, this duality, shows up in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In fact, the entire book is structured by this technique. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10, we get a sort of panoramic sweep of the whole of history. In verse 4, God chose us before the foundation of the world. So he's going all the way back to before creation. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be the completion of all of God's purposes in verse 10. Look, the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. And notice, the completion of God's plan is exactly what I'm talking about. God's plan is to remove the boundary between heaven and earth so that all things in heaven and on earth can be brought together, united in Christ. Now, in chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, it's the polarity, not of heaven and earth, but of God and humanity that is overcome. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, we see the polarity of Jew and Gentile is overcome. And then in chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, we see it is the polarity of man and woman that is resolved. Now listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, where Paul is talking about the difficulty and beauty of marriage. And in the climactic moment of the whole book, he reaches all the way back into creation, into the polarity of male and female sexual differentiation. He takes this from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and he applies it to Christ in the church. Here it is, Ephesians 5, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the great story the Bible is telling from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It is the story of history from the beginning to the end. And it is told that God comes to us in Jesus Christ to make us his own, a union of opposites. And according to Ephesians chapter 5, marriage, the one flesh union 
of a man and a woman is the symbol of the greater union. It is the symbol of the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. That's the pattern of Genesis 2. Eve is taken from Adam's rib, a separation, a forming of a pair of different bodies, different human forms. It says she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the forming of complementary pairs is symbolized in their physical bodies. And then the joyful reunion, the two shall become one flesh, male and female, this creational pairing of humans who are different from each other, with different bodily forms, coming together in marriage, this is designed as one of the primary signposts to the meaning of all of history. A signpost to the great joy that awaits us, the great feast and celebration, the great and overwhelming experience of God's love on the day that we hear the cry from Revelation 19, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And this is the reason why same-sex sexual relationships are forbidden in Scripture. Now let's pause here for a moment and see how this clarifies two important questions Christians often face with regard to homosexuality. First of all, the challenge of love. People often say, if two men love each other, what's wrong with them expressing this love through sex? And the Christian answer is that love matters, but it's not enough. Now, on the one hand, there are definitely great virtues embodied in many homosexual relationships. I do hope that you know that many, many gay partners experience profound devotion, real care, and sacrificial self-offering. And wherever there is a longing to give love to another person, Wherever there is a longing to receive love from another person, in the words of C.S. Lewis, that longing, that desire, bears traces of divinity. As Mother Teresa famously says, said, where there is love, there is God. And yet, when we look at sex, in the whole sweep of the biblical story, we see that sex needs more than love. For example, if love is enough, then we have no way of explaining why adultery is an action that turns against Christ. Or think about sadomasochism. 
where partners make themselves vulnerable to harm while manifesting real trust that their lover will not go too far. If love alone justifies, then there is no way to explain how sadomasochism degrades rather than dignifies our humanity. If we want to distinguish between fulfilling and corrupting sex, we cannot talk only of love or consent or mutuality. However much my neighbor's wife and I are drawn to each other, our bodies are already promised to another. However in deep and intense may be a father's affection for his adult daughter, to give himself sexually to her is a perversion. The quality of love in a relationship is a bearer of the traces of divinity. And that is obvious in so many homosexual relationships. And yet, this does not and cannot by itself provide the necessary content and structure for sex. When we allow the big, beautiful narrative of the Bible to give us God's picture for sexuality, then we see God is not against gay love. He's against gay sex. Because as wonderful as love is, and as much as love matters, when it comes to sex, love is not enough. A second challenge we often face is the fact that there are not very many passages in the Bible that deal directly with homosexuality. I've frequently been told something like this. Aubrey, there are only a few places in the Bible that deal with this issue. It's not nearly such a big deal as Christians make of it today. Jesus himself didn't even talk about it. And in each of the cases where the Bible does talk about it, it's somewhat obscure. And it's wrapped up in the cultural matters of its time. And if those few passages weren't in the Bible, nothing else that's in the Bible would make us think God was against homosexuality. One example of this line of reasoning is the great actor Ian McKellen, Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. Truly one of the great actors of our day. He is a well-known, deeply respected gay man. And he said that he finds the passages in the Bible that condemn gay sex, uh, Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. He said that those passages are so repulsive, so offensive, that whenever he's in a hotel room, he finds the Gideon Bible and he tears out those pages. Now, McKellen is a fantastic actor. But he's a terrible Bible scholar. Because even without those passages, the Bible condemns homosexual relationships. As, as we've seen, there's a consistent scriptural teaching on sex and marriage. And the six passages that directly condemn homosexual actions are merely ancillary. Confirmation that same-sex sexual intimacy is ruled out of bounds by the Creator. The Bible's teaching against homosexual activity is not a result of those six passages. 
It is a result of the entire narrative of the Bible. And those six passages are ancillary confirmations of the nuptial figure of the biblical drama. It's the whole Bible, the whole shape of history and reality from beginning to end that condemns homosexual acts. So let's go back and put all of this together. The Bible shows us that the beauty and truth and deep significance of sex is premised upon a union of complementary pairs, male and female. Only this is capable of signifying the love and the intimate and the unbreakable union of the great complementary pair, Christ and the church. The prohibition of homosexual behavior is grounded in the warp and woof the entire unified narrative of Scripture from beginning to end, the entire shape of history and reality as God designed it to be. In our gender, in our sexuality, we are designed as symbols pointing to God's plan, to the union of Christ and the church. Same-sex sexuality lies about that. So does adultery. So does sex outside of marriage. So does a sexual relationship that refuses to be open to children because the marriage of Christ and the church is a fruitful union. But singleness testifies beautifully to God's plan because singleness communicates that human marriage and human sexual expression in this life is only a pointer. It is not ultimate. Christ is sufficient, and the marriage of Christ and his people is our true hope, our true goal, and in the resurrection, there will be no marrying or giving in marriage because the marriage supper of the Lamb will have come. And so the condemnation of same-sex relations is not just some arbitrary rule, and it's not just cultural conventions from the ancient world, and it's not just that the biblical writers didn't know anything about loving, committed same-sex relationships, and they were only concerned to, to condemn exploitative same-sex sex. No, it is the goal. The romance of history, the overwhelming love of God in Christ that rules out same-sex relationships as illegitimate expressions of sexual love. And so that's the way the Bible shows us gay sex is outside of God's will in its grand narrative. Now let's turn to the most extensive treatment of the subject in the Bible. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, if you, would, if you have a Bible, if you can find it, we'll, I'll be there for a few minutes. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. This is the most extensive treatment of homosexual behavior in the Bible. Eight brief observations. First, as we've seen throughout this series, when it comes to a complicated sexual issue, Paul follows Jesus. He goes back to creation. 
In verse 20, we read, ever since the creation of the world. Remember that passage we've looked at a bunch when Jesus was asked about divorce? Have you not heard that from the beginning? In verse 22, Paul speaks of humans claiming to be wise. Now, that's an echo of Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where we're told that Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And then in verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 32, we read about God's decree that sinners deserve to die. This is exactly what God decrees in Genesis 3. And so in Romans 1, 18 to 32, here's what I think is happening. I think that we have a theological analysis of culture where Paul is taking a description of certain cultural practices and looking at them through the topography of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So that the patterns of creation and fall give shape to the complex cultural issues of his day. So that's the first thing to recognize. It's this this treatment of homosexual behavior, it is, Paul is working with the stories of creation and fall in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Second, throughout this passage, Paul describes sin in a very particular way. He describes it in terms of an exchange. Verse 23, they exchanged. The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. That's the essence of sin. A rejection of the God who made us. An exchange. Turning from our creator and exchanging his glory to serve created things. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator. So here again, exchanging the truth of God for the lie of worshiping and serving things within creation. And when we do this, when we reject God, when we exchange him, we not only exchange God, this is the key movie makes. We exchange the truth about ourselves Because when we exchange God, remember, we are made in his image. So we're exchanging the true picture of us. We're trading it in. And so we get verse 26. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So there is a natural order to sexual relationships. God designed sex for a man and a woman. And in this passage, God is teaching us that when human cultures reject the creator, they also reject the creator's order of sexual relationships. The third observation about Romans 1, 18 to 32 is that when this exchange occurs, God hands us over to ongoing patterns of sin. 
Verse 24. Therefore, these exchanges, God gave them up, handed them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. For this reason, the exchange, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the actual existence of same-sex attraction is not proof it's okay. The fact that somebody has the attraction doesn't mean it's okay. It's not a sign that it's okay to be gay. It's a sign of God's judgment. Not on the individual experiencing it, but on the culture. He's dealing with cultures here, not individuals. This is sort of like when um, Jesus was asked about the blind man who sent him or his parents. I'm convinced the same thing is going to be said about homosexuality. Whose sin is this? Jesus is going to say, that's the wrong way to slice and dice this. The actual pattern of same-sex attraction is not a sign that it's okay. It's a sign of God's judgment. Now, we might not see that, but that's what the Scripture is narrating. It's a sign that humans have rebelled against God. And God has handed us over to the destructive consequences of our rebellion. Number four. Notice how our minds are described in this passage. Notice at the end of verse 21, they became futile in their thinking and their hearts foolish. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. In other words, this is something I've, I, I spent the whole first four sessions on. In other words, our moral intuitions are not to be trusted. Our experiences, our own beliefs about morality, including about gay sex, are inadequate. Human nature, as we experienced it, cannot itself provide the norms for human sexual behavior. What seems natural to us may in fact be contrary to God's plan. Behavior that is natural in the sense that we're readily drawn to it may in fact be unnatural, inappropriate to who we are made to be. Any parent of a two-year-old knows this concept. Experience alone, the prompting of love alone, the presence of real sacrificial caring alone, the deep inner drive alone, cannot be our soul tutor and guide because our experience, our intuitions, our minds, our hearts are broken and distorted and they must be reshaped and redirected. How? By Scripture. That's how. Whenever you read something in Scripture that you violently react to, you are wrong, not the Bible. 
And this can't be true for everybody but the progressives. And it can't be true for everybody but the fundamentalist. It's true for everybody. Number five. This passage condemns same-sex sexual practices and desires, but it does not address sexual identity. The Bible does not condemn gay people. God is talking about gay sex, lesbian sex, lustful sexual desires. God does not define us by our sexuality. If you're gay, you're not a separate category of person. God defines all of us in only three ways. There are only three ways that God defines people. One, as made in his image. Two, as male or female. And three, as being either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, our sinful actions and desires exclude us from the kingdom. But putting our faith in Christ, all that changes. Six. Gay sex is not the only sin in this passage. Verses 29 to 32. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There are all kinds of sins listed in this passage. In fact, do you know that every time the Bible speaks of same-sex sexual practices, it always lists that alongside other sins. None of us are off the hook. It won't do to demonize one particular set of sins. So homosexual acts do have a particular prominence in the passage. We'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, we need to see that homosexual behaviors are a particularly vivid example of something that is the case for all of us. All of us have made the exchange. All of us reject God and find ourselves craving things we're not naturally made to crave. Seven. Paul doesn't just criticize people who commit homosexual deeds. He also criticizes those who approve of homosexuality. Verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It is important to be clear about the definition of tolerance and its place among Christian virtues. Tolerance is definitely a virtue in some situations. In many situations. But love trumps tolerance. Love holds a superior place in the Christian worldview. Love and tolerance overlap. But they are not identical concepts. The Bible describes a God who loves the entire world but does not tolerate sin. In fact, here's here's a mind trip, a thing I learned this week in my studies. In the very few instances 
when the word tolerance or intolerance or any word that can be translated those ways in the very few instances where they show up in the Bible, almost every time it is in the context of condemning tolerance of immorality. Whenever the word shows up in the Bible, most of the time, it's in the context of condemning tolerance of immorality. In the Bible, tolerance of sexual immorality is a vice, not a virtue. And finally, number eight. Homosexual sin is serious. It is not an insignificant lifestyle choice. The whole section begins by talking in verse 18 about the wrath of God. God settled, measured hostility towards sinful men and women, boys and girls. And the section ends in verse 32 by talking about the reality of God's future judgment of death for sinners. This is a bookend. In literature, we call it an inclusio. And in Romans chapter 1, same-sex erotic relationships are the single most powerful symbol of the world's alienation from God. They stand out incandescently as a measure of the gulf between the purpose of love and sex in God's creation and the sexual disorder of Roman society. Same-sex attraction is a powerful and prime example of the estrangement of men and women at the very level of their inmost desires from their true nature and from the creator of nature himself. Now, look, I'm, I'm trying to walk a very fine line here. I'm not saying that, that homosexual behavior is the worst sin. I'm saying it is a prime symbol of our rejection of God. All right, we've covered a lot of ground from creation to new creation, from the whole sweep of the biblical drama, and from Romans chapter 1, we've seen that same-sex attraction is not what God originally intended for any of us. Now, how should we deal with this as a church, as Christians? What are we to do with this? Four tasks for the church today with regard to homosexuality. First of all, we must not cave in to the pressure from society and and the, pressure, and the pressure from our own moral intuitions as they have been shaped by the deep stories of identity, freedom, and love told by our culture. We must avoid the massive pressure to affirm same-sex attraction, even if it means loss of job, even if it means jail, even if it means Anything. We cannot cave on this. Now don't get me wrong. 
God calls us to be very loving toward all people, including gay people. We should go the extra mile to stress respect for our homosexual friends and neighbors and church members and family members, and we should go the extra mile in protecting them from harassment and prejudice and discrimination in public housing and education and employment, and yet We must not do anyone the unkindness of implying that the Bible is unclear about this issue. The failure of the church to help the homosexual make the transition out of homosexual practice and into sexual wholeness will make the church an accomplice to the very form of behavior that God finds detestable. The church will become an enabler of the practicing homosexuals' loss of spiritual transformation and possibly salvation. Centuries of the church's bigotry toward homosexuals, while undeniably wrong, cannot reflexively guilt trip the church into silence on the issue. We have screwed up terribly. But we cannot let that guilt trip silence us. To do that would be to deprive people made in God's image. People who are therefore infinitely precious and beautiful. It would, it would to maintain an embarrassed silence on this issue. To never say anything because of guilt or embarrassment, or fear, is to deprive people of the hope of the gospel. That's one task. A second task, we must avoid blindness to heterosexual sins. We're focused tonight on homosexual sins, but remember, this is one of nine teachings in our series, and it's, it's the only one focused on homosexuality. All sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is terrible. Looking at pornography is an awful sin. Fooling around with your boyfriend or girlfriend is a devastating sin. We should not think that same-sex sin is somehow farther from the reach of God's redemption than any other sexual sin. Each of us, because of our decadent culture and our own sinful proclivities, each of us faces sexual temptation in an endless variety of guises. And this is just as true for the married person as it is for the single person, for people attracted to others of their own sex and for people attracted to the opposite sex. This is why the Bible has as much to say about adultery and lust as it does about premarital promiscuity. In the end, every single one of us, gay, heterosexual, bisexual, gender identity confused, intersexed, at the end of the day, every one of us has to decide day by day, to whom do I belong? That's the second task. Third, ultimately, we are not dealing 
with an issue to be solved. We are talking about people. People to be loved. Even to the point of weeping with those who weep. Shedding tears of grief and sadness to them. We will not communicate God's better story for sex and human flourishing. If our posture is overly muscular and not sufficiently broken hearted. And the best way to know that we're talking about people is to have a gay friend. Become friends with gay people. Share real life with them. Look, if the people at your table don't have different opinions than you, then it's not hospitality. Share real life. Listen and learn from those among us caught up in the heartbreaking complexities of this issue. Let's listen to Christians with same-sex attraction who have fully embraced the church's historic and orthodox teaching on sexuality. And there are so many helpful resources on this. For example, I'm going to give you three websites. The first is a Catholic website www.everlastinghills.org H-I-L-L-S everlastinghills.org It's centered around a set of interviews of two men and a woman who stopped engaging in homosexual relationships because of their Christian faith. And the centerpiece of the website is a beautiful movie that I recommend to all of you. It's about two hours long. Get your family together. Put the movie on. Watch this movie. Second, I recommend to you www.livingout.org. This is one of the very best resources for same-sex attracted Christians. For those of us who have gay friends and family. Third, www.spiritualfriendship.org. This is another website I cannot recommend highly enough. And then there are a number of really good books written by Christians with homosexual attractions who are living in chastity. Some of these Christians are married. Such as Mario Bergner, Melinda Selmas, Rosario Butterfield, and Peter Ould. Others are single. Like Wesley Hill, Eve Tushnet, and Martin Hallett. Now, as we develop real friendships and learn to listen to gay people, we will be greatly helped in our fourth task, which is to stop offering simplistic solutions. There is a diversity among people with homosexual desires. Like I said at the very beginning of tonight, for some, sexual orientation is a choice. Rosario Butterfield, for example, who's coming to speak in Harrisonburg in the spring at Covenant Presbyterian Church. They're having a conference. Uh, She is a remarkable um, spokesperson on this. She narrates her own lesbian experience as a choice she made in her adult life. But for many others, such as Wesley Hill, whom I talked about at the very beginning, being gay is not a choice. It is something he found himself experiencing unrequested. 
What's the cause of homosexual desires? We don't know. Theology and science point to a number of factors that could possibly be the cause. And, and the best science and best theology of today are saying that there's a number of factors that are probably weighted differently in different people's lives. Things like biology, childhood experiences, and environmental influences, and adult experiences. Furthermore, sexuality exists on a continuum ranging from fluid to fixed. Many people change their sexual identity. And many people who try to change their sexual orientation aren't able to do so. There's a mystery here. And so we must avoid simplistic thinking. Sanctification is not coterminous with heterosexuality. I began tonight's session talking about Wesley Hill. He is a devout and godly man who has experienced very little change over the years in his homosexual desires. In fact, at one point in his book, Wesley writes, Like Paul, I have prayed fervently, desperately, tearfully on multiple occasions, God, take this thorn from my flesh. And like Paul, God hasn't. Please, please don't ever tell someone. If you want healing from same-sex attraction, it's available. You only have to have faith. That is not true. Just like it's not true for depression. Or Down syndrome. Or the death of your loved one. Have enough faith and they'll come back. Why don't you get passes on all of that stuff? But the homosexual doesn't. There are any number of shadows of the fall that lay across our life. That in God's mystery, he says, yes, I'll change or no, I won't. In a fallen world, learning how to be God's children is not easy for any of us. The counterformation of fragmented identities involves long commitments it involves an arduous journey of relearning and reshaping deeply rooted feelings and thought. For some, professional, skilled therapy will be required. Especially for those from abusive backgrounds or whose identity have been, has been hollowed out in the dark corners of contemporary society. For some... It's a process of patient formation through the example and modeling of others in small groups and one-to-one -one discipling. Learning how to be God's child and his image bearer is a lifelong calling that belongs to every one of us. Don't cave in to the pressure to affirm homosexual behavior. Don't be blinded to heterosexual sins. Remember, we're talking about people and refuse simplistic solutions. Now, as I bring this session to a close, let's look to Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 8. And while you're finding Matthew chapter 8,
remember that each of us needs to discover in the depth of our soul something God tells us in Romans. It's this, quoting, There is no one righteous, not even one of you. All of you have turned away. You have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Being heterosexual does not take you to Jesus. Heterosexuality does not justify us before God. The only way we are justified before God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Sooner or later, we all deal with sexual struggles of one kind or another. Young or old, male or female, single, married, widowed, divorced. Whether you're attracted to people of the same sex or opposite sex, or both. No one in this room is straight. All of us are bent and twisted out of shape because of Adam's fall. We all need forgiveness and healing for our sin. And Jesus is more than willing to meet us in our brokenness, in our shame, and in our sin. Listen now to Matthew chapter 8 verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain... Great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Are you dirty? Do you know yourself to be unclean? Are you stained by sexual sin? Jesus is able to make you clean. If you are a Christian believer, he has made you clean. You may feel dirty, too dirty to come into contact with Jesus. You may feel like surely he could want nothing to do with you. But did you hear verse 3? Did you hear what happened when Jesus encountered someone else who was unclean? He does not recoil in horror. He will not recoil from you. He reached out and touched this person. This evening, whoever you are, whatever you have done. Whatever your sexual brokenness, whatever your ongoing sexual struggles, Jesus wants to be in contact with you. He wants you close to himself. In the book of Revelation, we hear Jesus saying, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. As we open the door of our lives to the Lord Jesus, He will humbly 
enter in, bringing with himself all of his grace and beauty and power, washing us, sanctifying us, and justifying us in his own glorious name.